listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Today's scripture reading is from Mark chapter 8. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks for that reading, Shauna. So uh, today is Palm Sunday, uh, if, you, if you missed it by, you know, these being handed out, um, which means that we are uh, officially in Holy Week. It also means uh, that Lent is almost over, which is great news if you've been fasting. Um, for those of us who maybe you gave up chocolate or wine or red meat or something like that, uh, we're almost there. It's almost over. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But we're not there yet. Uh, As Christians, I think a lot of times uh, we like to jump right from Palm Sunday to Easter, kind of like how it goes Sunday to Sunday. We like to go from, you know, waving the branches and shouting Hosanna right to the empty tomb. But we miss something pretty big if we do that. We miss the cross. It can be really easy uh, in this time of year with all the energy, all the excitement, everything that is happening to be distracted, to just skip right over the cross. Uh, We're busy. Uh, Spring is upon us, or at least it was when I wrote this. Um, You know, spring is here. A lot of us have uh, family get-togethers we're planning for, egg hunts to get the kids to, stuff like that. It can be really easy in all the hustle and energy of this time to miss the cross. So if you are looking to slow down a little bit this week and maybe to deepen your experience of Holy Week, um, 
we've got two things I just want to tell you about, two resources. Uh, the first is this little AMPM prayer guide in your bulletins. Uh, this is a guide for morning and evening prayer that we've been giving out um, every week in Lent. Um, I, I don't know how many folks are doing this. I've heard from a few, um, and I've heard really good feedback, which is awesome, folks who are using this for prayer. Um, and I want to say, if you haven't tried this yet, if you've been kind of like, ah, AMPM, what is that? This is the week that you want to give it a try. Because the readings that are in here for Holy Week are just perfect for getting into that zone, especially as we approach uh, Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and, of course, Easter. These readings will help kind of zone you in on the story uh, of Jesus going to the cross. So that's thing number one. <clears throat> Put that on uh, your nightstand at home. Give it a try. Thing number two is an event we have coming up this week on Thursday and Friday called Illuminations of the Cross. Um, this is a brand new event. We've never done this before. We're also coming out of COVID. Um, so, you know, big group events at church are always a little weird. Um, but this is going to be a reflective, uh, interactive event here at church where we'll actually get to experience Jesus' journey to the cross. Uh, the sanctuary is going to be transformed. Um, it's going to be a really immersive experience. All the information, again, is in your bulletin in this little um, this little purple sheet. Uh, the event is for all ages, so parents bring kids, um, all ability levels. We've got a little scooter here. Anyone can do this. Um, it's going to take about a half hour to complete to walk through and see these stations of the cross and do the little interactive things. I want to encourage you, if you're kind of on the fence, if you're thinking about it, give it a try. Thursday or Friday, swing by the church. Um, you don't want to miss this. It's going to be pretty awesome. Uh, that's enough for my bonus announcements. Uh, let's dig into our passage because there's a lot here. I need a drink of water because there's a lot that happens in these 13 verses. They are loaded with content. Uh, but I think we can simplify things a lot in this passage by focusing on two questions. Who is Jesus and what does that mean for us? Who is Jesus and what does that mean for for us, these are the two questions that are really at the heart of this entire passage. Jesus goes up to his disciples, and he asks, who do people say that I am? feels like the setup for a joke, actually, right? <laughs> it's just like kidding me. Um, he doesn't walk into a bar or anything like that. Jesus goes up to his disciples, and he says, who do people say that I am? And they rattle off all these different opinions. Some people think you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Uh, some say you're Elijah. Others say you're a prophet. It's not all that different from today. If you get a random group of people together, just walk up to someone on the street and say, who is Jesus? What would you say about Jesus? You will probably hear a lot of different answers. Uh, some are going to say he's the son of God. Uh, some might say he's the founder of Christianity. Uh, some will say he's a teacher. Uh, our Muslim friends would say he's a prophet. Some folks might say he's a false prophet. If you're an atheist, you might say he's a myth. There's a lot of different answers, a lot of different opinions to that question, who do people say that I am? But Jesus presses in, and he asks his disciples directly, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter speaks up on behalf of the group, and he says, you are the Christ. You gotta feel bad for Peter in this story a little bit, right? Like, my heart hurts for him. He starts on such a high note. Jesus is like, who do you say that I am? And Peter is like, the Christ, and he's right. Like, A plus, right answer. Matthew's gospel actually gives us the same story, but Matthew gives us more information. Uh, in Matthew's version, 
we get Jesus' response to Peter, and he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, that's Peter, um, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. If you're Peter, you've got to be pretty pumped, right? Like, I got one right, right? But poor Peter, his success is short-lived. Um, Jesus goes on to say that the Christ is going to have to suffer and die. Uh, verse 31. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Ouch, right? Get behind me, Satan. Peter is so close. He's got the right answer. If the question is, who's Jesus, then Peter has the right response. He's the Christ. He just has no clue what that means. I think a lot of us today, a lot of Christians, don't know what it really means when we say that Jesus is is the Christ. Like, did you know that Christ is not Jesus' last name? This, see, see, you laugh. It's probably obvious to some of you. I grew up at church, in church. I didn't figure this out until I was like 12 years old. For, for the first like 10, 12 years of my life, I thought that was his name, you know, Jesus H. Christ. I figured, you know, I thought the H stood for Howard or something. Um, but Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Christ is a title, in fact, it is the Greek translation of the Hebrew title Messiah. Now, uh, someone help me out with this. Does anyone know what Messiah means? You have to say it. King, that's actually pretty close. Savior, not uh, Yes, but that's not the literal translation. Messiah means anointed one. It means someone who is anointed, someone who is chosen by God, anointed usually with oil. I don't know why I'm making the sign of the cross, because our Jewish friends wouldn't have done that. Um, someone who's anointed with oil, um, usually for a specific task. That's a Messiah, a Christ. But back in Jesus' day, back then when people thought about the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, they would have had one image in their mind. And it's an image someone else already said. A king, exactly. The Messiah is the king, the person anointed to lead God's people. That is the anointed one, the king. We could translate Jesus Christ, King Jesus. That would be a 100% accurate translation, which means that Christ is a political title. Remember where we're at in the story at this point. God's people have been dominated for centuries, occupied by empire after empire. You've got Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. The people are dying for a Messiah. They're dying for an anointed one, a king. Peter is hungry for a liberator, someone who's going to come and throw off the shackles of Rome, liberate his people, establish justice, bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's what they want. 
When Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, when he hails him as King Jesus, Peter is looking for a warrior. Today is Palm Sunday, right? Think about the Palm Sunday story. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. The people rush out to meet him, waving palms in the air like flags. They shout, Hosanna, which means save us. This is the same crowd that in five days is going to be shouting, crucify him, as soon as they figured out that Jesus is not the kind of king they were hoping for. Jesus breaks the news to his disciples that in order to be the Christ, in order to be the king, he's going to have to suffer and die. Peter doesn't like that very much. Peter takes Jesus aside. He rebukes him. He's like, come on, man. You can't talk like that. The Messiah can't die. How are you going to liberate the people if you're dead? To which Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. You clearly don't know what it means to be the Christ. I think a lot of us as Christians, we know who Jesus is. <clears throat> we know the name. We've got the right answer, right? Check the box, A+. Plus, Jesus is the Christ. We just have no clue what that means. A lot of us are still hoping for a warrior. A lot of us are still expecting Jesus to be a king just like all the other kings. We're shouting Hosanna to a king who we think is going to show up to clean house, conquer our enemies, and give us the good life. Now, I really hesitate to use this example because it's political, but Christ is a political title, so what the hey, let's do it. Um, back in December, <clears throat> there was a rally, this is December, just a few months ago, put on by Turning Point USA. Um, Turning Point USA is a political organization uh, that is very popular among evangelical Christians. That's kind of their base, is, is evangelicals. Um, they advocate for a lot of culture war issues, a lot of faith and politics intermingling. That is Turning Point USA in a nutshell. And back in December, they hosted a rally where one of the speakers made some headlines. Um, this is an article from Baptist News Global. Baptist News Global, not a bastion of the liberal media. Just want to just make that clear. The headline reads, Donald Trump Jr. tells young conservatives that following Jesus' command to turn the other cheek has, quote, gotten us nothing. Here's the full quote. We've been playing t-ball for half a century while they're playing hardball and cheating, Right? We've turned the other cheek, and I understand sort of the biblical reference. I understand the mentality, but it's gotten us nothing. Now, here's the thing. He's not entirely wrong. There's actually one part of this that is A+, absolutely correct. I agree 100%. Turning the other cheek will get you nothing. It got Jesus landed on a cross. But on a much deeper level, I find this whole situation really disturbing and uncomfortable as a Christian. Not because it's Donald Trump Jr., who cares? 
The guy's not a pastor. He's not a Bible scholar. I'm not concerned about his take on faith or religion or the Bible. That's not what bothers me. What concerns me is the response. Because after he said this, this crowd full of Christians, self-proclaimed followers of Jesus, erupted in applause. We've tried following Jesus. We've tried turning the other cheek, and it's gotten us nothing. And the crowd goes wild. What kind of Christ are we looking for? And what does that mean for us? We started out with two questions. The first was, who is Jesus? The answer is the Christ. And our second question is, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for those of us who follow Jesus, a king who gives up his own life, who dies at the hands of his enemies in order to save his enemies? What does it mean for us who follow that kind of king? What does that look like? Jesus gives us the answer. He tells us a little bit of that in our passage, uh, Mark 8, starting in verse 34. Jesus called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That stings a bit, that last line there. Those who are ashamed of me in this generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of them when he comes in glory. That scares the crap out of me. That should scare every Christian who hears that line. If Jesus is the Christ who comes to die, then to put it really simply, what that means for us is take up your cross and follow. Take up your cross and follow. Again, this is another thing where I think a lot of us know this already, right? A lot of Christians have the answer. We check the box. It's like, oh yeah, I know that line. Take up your cross and follow. Got it. No problem. We just have no clue what it means. For us, the cross has become a religious icon, right? It's a, it's a symbol. We tattoo it on our hands for crying out loud. Some of us do. Um, we get lost in all these cute little symbolic renderings of what taking up your cross looks like. We use this line all the time as Christians, don't we? You know, when the weather is bad, when it's snowing in April in western New York, you know, it's like, well, we live in western New York. That's our cross to bear, Right? Um, when you're annoyed with a coworker or you're frustrated that you didn't get your own way, just got to take up my cross, right? Sometimes this can take a really destructive turn. Like in some churches, um, victims of abuse will be told to take up their cross. 
Um, I know multiple women personally at multiple different churches who were encouraged by their pastor to stay with an abusive husband, and their pastors told them that that is what taking up their cross looked like. I want to be crystal clear on this one. When Jesus says take up your cross, he's not saying that we should stay in an abusive relationship. Jesus was not manipulated into taking up his cross. He chose this path. This was part of his mission, part of his plan from the beginning. There's no abuse happening here, at least not that type of abuse. When Jesus tells us to take up our cross, he's not using a metaphor. He's not talking about some religious icon that we wear on a necklace. He's not giving us a symbol for personal annoyances. When Jesus says, take up your cross, he's referring to one thing, and it's a Roman execution tool. He's talking about a journey that leads to death. A journey he is willingly embarking on as the Christ to save the world, and it's a journey that we are invited to join him on too. And I'll tell you the truth, I kind of get Peter in this situation. Like I think most days, I'm with Peter. I don't think I'm ready for that level of commitment, not most of the time. Maybe on like a really good day, when I'm uh, feeling super optimistic and probably lacking in some self-awareness, that's probably when I'm like, yes, I'm going to take up my cross. But most days, most days I'm with Peter. You can't die, Jesus. That can't be the plan. You can't expect that from us. You can't expect me to lay down my life. It sounds unattainable. It sounds unrealistic. But then I see Christians who carry this out, followers of Jesus, put in extreme situations who actually follow through, and it gives me hope. Personally, I go to civil rights leaders. People like Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, both Baptists, by the way. Um, not that that matters, not that that matters. Um, but these heroes who endured beatings and all sorts of violence, who took up their cross, oftentimes unto death, to stand for what was right, to love their enemies, because that's what it looked like to follow Jesus. I think of people like Desmond Doss, Um, Desmond Doss is probably lesser known. He was a medic in the U.S. Army during World War II. The movie Hacksaw Ridge is based on his life. I'd feel weird recommending that movie in church because it's super violent, but so is Holy Week. So, I don't know. I'll let you discern. Maybe a a watch this week. Um, Desmond Doss enlisted in the Army during World War II as a medic, but because of his Christian convictions, he refused to touch a weapon, wouldn't even handle a gun. So they let him join the army. They thought he was out of his mind, but they sent him into battle, one of the most bloody battles of the war, with no weapon, and Desmond Doss saved 75 lives. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, these are really extreme examples, right? Modern-day heroes of our faith. But I'll tell you what, I see common examples of this sort of thing every day. Oftentimes, I see it from you all. I see spouses who walk with their partners through sickness, disability, till death do us part. 
I see parents who give all that they have for the flourishing of a special needs kid. I see retirees who dedicate their time and energy to serving their community. I see Christians standing up to their bosses on ethical issues knowing full well they could lose their jobs. I see these examples from you of real-life Christians embodying that sort of radical, self-sacrificial love, and it gives me hope. It gives me hope that maybe when I hear that question from Jesus, who do people say that I am, maybe I won't just have the right answer. Maybe I'll have actually lived it out. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that you are? How are you seen by your neighbors, your family members, your enemies? When people look at you, do they see that self-sacrificial love of Jesus? Do they see you taking up your cross? Or do they see someone who just wants to win? What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? What does it profit a person to get a promotion and lose their soul? What does it profit us to win an argument and lose our souls? Jesus revealed his power by laying it down and taking up the cross. If you want to follow Jesus, we got to put down our egos and take up the cross. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. If you want to live up to your full potential, be your best self, you've got to be like Jesus. I don't usually end my sermons with a quote, especially not a quote from John Calvin, of all people. Some of you get that. But I believe in acknowledging truth wherever it's found, and in that spirit... I want to share this quote that I came across while researching for this sermon because it's too good not to share. We are not our own. Therefore, let us not seek what may be expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. Therefore, let us, as far as possible, forget ourselves and all things that are ours. On the contrary, we are God's. To him, therefore, let us live and die. Let's pray. God, we ask you to journey with us this week as we approach the cross and find hope in the promise of resurrection. Help us to respond to that question, who do people say that I am, by directing our lives, our minds, our hearts, and all that we are toward Christ. Lord, may the same mind be in us that was in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself, being born in human likeness, and who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.